YouTube next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you get an opportunity, go to our page on Facebook and like our page. You can also follow us on Twitter at 814NEXT. Lend your voice to the dialogue and to the debate. Today is a very special way of honoring Black History Month. I know oftentimes we hear people go after things like historic figures in U.S. history. Uh, maybe there's something that, that makes mention of slavery. I wanted to go back even further where black history was concerned. My church has been going through a book every week for the month of February entitled The Bible is Black History. And this, Bible, this book does a masterful job of just outlining not only the uh, ethnic backgrounds of many of the people from the Bible that we've become familiar with, but it also does a great job of debunking some of the myths that we've been fed from various institutions and various churches throughout this country. It goes after some of the myths that exist where the Bible is concerned about ethnicity overall. My church found it extremely enlightening, and so one of the things that we wanted to do was to bring the writer of this wonderful book onto our show here for WQLM in order to enlighten the audience and share the information that we've had an opportunity to sit down and unpack together for these last few weeks. And so I'd like to welcome the author of The Bible is Black History, Dr. Theron D. Williams. Dr. Williams, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. And I want to give his exact title here. He's the founder and president of the Bible is Black History Institute, LLC. He is also the pastor of Mount Carmel Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. So I want to start with first things first, because as I read the book in the beginning, I have a 30-year-old son and a 29-year-old well, daughter now and a 22-year-old daughter. When the conversation about this comes up, it was interesting when I read about your experience with millennials at your church, because I heard so much of my adult children in that dialogue. Enlighten the listeners as to the impetus behind you writing this book in the first place with this conversation with millennials at your church. Yeah, uh, thank you, Marcus. Several years ago, um, I, we were experiencing a mass defection of younger people from our church. And I thought that it was unique to Mount Carmel in Indianapolis. And I was trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Uh, historically, uh, of course, I've been in my church for 35 years, so I've seen a lot of trends taking place in our church. Historically, earlier on in my ministry at that church, when young people would leave to go to college, many of them who decided to return to Indianapolis would come back to their church, and they would come back serving and offering themselves and trying to pull the generation behind them along. But then I started discovering that um, even when they did return to the city, they were not returning to the church. And with that, there were those who decided to go to school in Indianapolis. They were defecting from the church as well. And those who didn't go to college uh, but decided to uh, enter the workforce after high school they were defecting from the church. So you, we had a whole range of young people leaving the church. And I was concerned because I thought perhaps it was something that I had done. Maybe they had uh, some misgivings or had become apprehensive about uh, the direction of the church and the leadership of the church. And so I called them together. You know, I sent out letters and made personal telephone calls so that we can have a conversation. And most of them responded 
And so we had all of these young people at our church uh, one Thursday night just to have a conversation as to why they had left the church and come to find out that it had nothing to do with me personally. They still respected me. That's why they came to the meeting because they did want to talk about it. And the problem that they were having, Doc, is they were getting information from the internet, a lot of misinformation concerning, and it caused them to question the, um, the efficacy of the black church. Mm -hmm. They were arguing that the black church is not what it used to be, and perhaps it has outlived its purpose. They were arguing the, um, the authenticity of the Bible. They said that the Bible is a white man's book and it was used, uh, it's designed to oppress black people during the slave era. That master obey your slave, that slave obey your master passage and all that type of thing. They argued that that was used to make the slave docile and complicit, compliant to white domination. So they wondered, why are you continuing to rely on this book when it has been used as a tool of oppression? And then thirdly, they even began to question the historicity of Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, they said, there, there is no Jesus. Jesus is an invention of the Roman government. And that invention is designed to keep oppressed people at the bottom. And the problem that I saw is that they got this misinformation off the internet and then they circulated it on their social media platforms. And you know, the social media platforms have algorithms. And when they look at the algorithms, everybody who think alike or give a like or a thumbs up or engage in particular conversation, all of them are grouped together. Mm -hmm. So there was literally a virtual community of young people circulating this misinformation that they had gotten off of the internet. And so I'm sitting there in the midst of all of this, and I said to them, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Will you give me four weeks so that I can conduct a Bible study with you to address the issues that you've just pointed out here tonight in this meeting? And they said, fine. And they attended the Bible study for four weeks. And that four weeks, Marcus, turned into nine months. Mm -hmm. And at the end of nine months, many of them were convinced. Some of them weren't. You know, they left the church and never returned. Many of them were convinced, and they repented and came back to the church. Some were convinced, but they never did return to the church. So it was a, a mix, a mixed reception to the, to the information. But all of them appreciated the information mm -hmm. and they asked me you know this information is too rich to be kept in our church can you put it together in book form right and i did you know i went to kindle kdp and put it together in book form and it was just for my church and their friends who had who they had been sharing this information with that's all that's all i wanted it to do mm -hmm. man when that book was published <laughs> i went online to check it out it was the number one new release, and then it moved up to a number one bestseller. Mm -hmm. and then I started getting all of these calls from the black Hebrew Israelites um, 
because they started selling. I was like, wait, hold, hold, time out, time out. Let me go back and relook at this and redo a second edition because of all of the attention that it was getting. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I hadn't put my best foot forward as a scholar because I didn't know the book was going to do this. Right. So I redid the second edition, which is probably the edition that you have, at least I hope. <laughs> and so that's how, that's how it got started. So I want to go back to just the human reaction to the reaction of your children, the children from your church, the youth of your church. You know, there's a raging debate going on in the country in all types of churches. Is, is the service for the churched or the unchurched? And we get into a rhythm where the, the service becomes the type of service that churched folk are accustomed to. And for other churches, and they wrestle with how much are we doing to reach people who haven't really come to know Jesus or the Bible. And so the moment that you realized you had this large contingent of members of your church feeling this way, what did that conversation sound like to whomever you went to after, be it a spouse or other pastors? What did that conversation sound like once you got to the bottom of this apathy or this defection? Well, again, I thought it was unique to Mount Carmel. But then I started talking to pastors around the country and they were experiencing the same thing. Right. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, this is universal. This is across the board. You know, and there were also dark mass defections that I learned from white congregations. Right. But the defection from white con congregations uh, were different in nature for the black church. And so we started having this conversation and many of my colleagues said that we need to relook at this. We need to investigate this um, so that we can get this information at least it can help address some of the issues that was causing the defections, at least the defections of the young people from the Mount Carmel Church. Mm -hmm. So when you said you didn't put your best foot forward as a scholar, say more no, about I, that. Give us the, the exact things or some of the, an idea of the type of commentary that made you feel like, you know what, I should have gone deeper. Let me go back in and rework some things. What does that look like? I was invited to do lectures around the country. And as I would go do these lectures, I would get a lot of questions uh, from the people in the audience that I had not addressed, that I did not go deep enough in the first edition. Um, and there was some scholarship questions, some scholarship issues that I did not fully uh, pursue, that I did not put my best foot forward as a, as a writer, as a scholar. And so when I took all of that into consideration, I said, you know, a, a second edition is needful for this so that I can go more in depth into some of the questions that the audience had and some of the comments that I was getting on my, um, on my, uh, my page, my uh, website. I was getting comments from people and people who have read the book would make comments in, um, on the website about the book. And so I, I took all of that into consideration. Some people were scathing about it. Some people really dogged it out and talked bad about it, but that's okay because some of the stuff that they were saying about the book was true. 
even though it was couched in hateful and angry language, it was still true. And so I took all of that stuff and pulled it all together. And I said, let me redo this, tighten the thing up, make it a bit more scholarly, cite more credible sources right. uh, to make this more believable and more acceptable. Obviously, this is a, a book bestseller of all time, all the time, right? And so it's something that is hotly contested, even within the ranks of traditional Christianity, let alone people that are not following uh, that belief system or people that have their own type of spiritual belief system. Let's go back to the beginning, because even from a scientific standpoint, the Bible in its genesis is an African slash Ethiopian story. Unpack that for the listener, please. Well, um, first of all, one of the things that I argue is the location of Palestine. When you look at a map, it's clear, irrefutable, that Palestine is located on the furthest northeast corner of Africa. It is literally connected to Egypt. Now, when you look at that and you look at the definition of a continent, the definition is, of a continent is a contiguous landmass, one of the seven large contiguous landmasses on Earth that's surrounded by two or more uh, water expanses, major water expanses. And then if you look at, the, uh, at, at North America, where we live, you know, the landmass consists of Canada, United States, and Mexico. That's North America. And it's surrounded by at least four major uh, water expanses, including the Atlantic, the, uh, the Pacific, uh, the Caribbean, and up north is the, um, what, what is it, the Antarctic, major water expanses. You look at Africa, it's a contiguous landmass. That is, I can access any point of Africa by foot without having to cross a major water expanse. For example, on the continent of North America, I can start at the furthest most point in Canada and start walking south and not have to cross a major water expanse until I get to the southernmost point of Mexico. I can get around by foot. In Africa, you can start walking in South Africa and start walking north and not stop till you get to Morocco without having to cross a major water expanse. You can start walking in, in, uh, in um, Nigeria on the west coast of Africa and start walking east and not stop until you get to Israel without having to cross a major water expanse. But now you do have to cross a major water expanse with the um, institution of the Suez Canal. You know, that's a, that separated Israel from Egypt. Mm -hmm. But prior to the institution or the creation of the Suez Canal, you could get from Egypt to Africa, to, from, to, to Israel on foot. It was a part of the Egyptian peninsula. But somehow they have cut off Israel, they've cut off Egypt, and they have created this, this political construct, this geopolitical construct called the Middle East. Mm -hmm. I along and I agree with Dr. King Hofelder, there is no such thing as the Middle East. It's either Africa or it's Asia. 
And when the Middle East was first started, we the name was in the late 19th, early 20th century. When that name Middle East first started, it was designed to designate the land between Arabia going over east to, to India. It was a small strip that they called the Middle East. But in time, the Middle East has grown because the people who are in charge of naming it, the powers get to decide what its boundaries are. Mm -hmm. And so the boundaries are growing wider and wider and wider. Man, land doesn't grow. That's why I say it is a geopolitical social construct. The powers that be decide what the boundaries of the Middle East are. But the truth of the matter is, is that Israel and Egypt are on the continent of Northeast Africa. Being that, that's where Christianity and Judaism emerged in Palestine. If it emerged in Palestine, and if Palestine is a part of the continent of Africa, that makes Christianity and Judaism African religions. Mm -hmm. But we'll never hear that because we never talk about it. Right. We don't want to talk about it. From a scientific standpoint, you cite several studies that were made in terms of trying to narrow down or pin down the ethnicity of Adam and Eve. Talk about that a little bit for us, please. Well, um, first of all, when you look at the, the description of the land of Eden, uh, according to the Genesis narrative, it talks about, what is it, four rivers, uh, the Tigris, Euphrates, um, and the two other rivers are the, what are they? Um, had I known you were going to talk to me about it, I would have remembered That's all right. uh, the two other rivers that name the book of Genesis. Uh, the Gihon and the, um, can't think of the other river that's in, that's in the Genesis narrative that describe uh, the location of the land of Eden. But the land masses are important in that text as well. And two of the land masses are in Africa, Cush and um, Havilah. Now, uh, there is some debate over where Havilah is located, but there is no debate about the location of Cush. We all know that that's Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. Havilah, according to some archaeological scholars, um, is South Africa uh, because it fits the description of the river that runs through Havilah. And Havilah in the Bible is also described as a land that's rich with gold and with, um, and with other uh, Aramaic resins and, and other things that are common in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the reasons that many uh, archaeologists and other scholars locate Havilah in South Africa. And so now you have the Tigris and the Euphrates, that's upward um, near Iraq and Iran in that area, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And so when you look at the boundaries of uh, uh, the land of Eden as described in, in the Bible, we see that Africa is embraced within those boundaries. Now here is what's fascinating. In 2005 and 1987, I'm sorry, Rebecca Cann was looking for the mother of modern humans. And she traced the mitochondrial DNA. Uh, women have, everybody has mitochondrial DNA, 
but women are responsible for passing it from one generation to the next. So Rebecca Can said it makes sense that if I'm tracing uh, the mother of modern humans, I would trace the mitochondrial DNA. She took DNA samples from people worldwide and she traced it back close to 100,000 years ago near Ethiopia, near uh, between South Africa and Ethiopia. She excavated skull fragments uh, from, from bones that carbon dated back to the time where she argued the, the mother of modern humans originate. And she made skull fragments and used to see those skull fragments. She had um, uh, uh, these scientists, forensic scientists, to create busts of what they believe the first modern humans look like. And she concluded that the mother of modern human is a black woman. Several years later in 2005, Spencer Wells did the same thing, but he was looking for the father of modern human. Mm -hmm. And he traced the Y chromosome because men have a X and a Y chromosome. Women have two X chromosomes. He traced the Y chromosome back to East Africa near Ethiopia and discovered that the father of modern human, whom the Bible identifies as Adam, the mother of modern human, whom the Bible identifies as Eve, is somewhere in East Africa. And here's the part that's exciting, is that where it traced back the mother and father of modern humans, it is within the boundaries of the genesis of the, of the land of Eden, according to the Genesis narrative. It is within those boundaries. So that's what makes it extremely exciting to me. Fascinating. This needs to be a three-hour interview because the book was riveting. I've had a lot of questions, but I want to go after the things that I know I've heard the most in society. And one of the narratives that I've heard quite a few times is the narrative of Noah and his sons. And sidebar, I thought the, the conversation about uh, albinoism, Vitiligo, you made some very interesting points in there where that's concerned. I see that you quoted the book of Enoch, which brings up a whole other conversation about what is biblical canon, what is accepted scripture, which is very fascinating. But the story of Noah and his sons, can you encapsulate that story? Talk about the misconceptions or the flat out lies where Noah and his sons are concerned and give us a snapshot of what truth looks like according to your research on this topic. Okay, well, first of all, let me, let me address briefly um, the use of the book of Enoch. And I know uh, Enoch is not uh, canonized, I, I know exactly. that, but Enoch is quoted at length in the book of Jude, uh, which is the 65th book of the canon. Mm -hmm. Jude relies on Enoch. He quotes Enoch at length. So if Jude uses him, and we accept Jude as divinely inspired, then he legitimizes Enoch. Right. You know, he doesn't make Enoch's work canonized. It's not a part of the canon, but he legitimizes it as a credible source. And so I use Enoch uh, in my development of my theory about, um, uh, about, um, uh, Noah and his sons. Mm -hmm. Dr. But Dr. Anyway, Williams, if I could interrupt you for just two seconds on that point for the listener, if you are unfamiliar with the book of Enoch, this is a book 
that many scholars, many even lay people are starting to read and it's being quoted more and more often and you use the term legitimize, the legitimacy of the book of Enoch is something that is also of great debate. If you haven't had a chance to read it, I encourage you to do so. You don't have to agree with it. It's not so that, that you can accept it per se, but it is an eye-opening read for those that ascribe to the truth of the Bible. Go ahead, Dr. Williams. Yeah, so the, the whole lie to justify white supremacy is that, you know the story of, of, of Noah, how Noah got drunk, he went to sleep, and his two uh, oldest son, his youngest son, uh, Ham, came in, saw him naked, and whatever happened, because when Noah woke up out of his drunken stupor, the text says when he realized what Ham had done to him. I don't know what Ham did to him. I don't know what happened. I don't know if he just looked on him. I don't know. The Bible does not say. But while he was drunk in his, his stupor, whatever Ham did, looked on his nakedness, I don't know what happened, but his older two brothers came and walked backwards and covered his father. So since his brothers came and walked backwards with a blanket, the offense probably was just looking on his father's nakedness and probably ridiculing his father's nakedness. So when, when um, Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor, he curses according to white evangelicals. He curses Ham to be the servant of his brothers, right. which legitimize oppression of all black people. Mm -hmm. You know, and they color code the names of Noah's son. They say, Ham means dark, hot, or black. Uh, Shem means brown or dusty. And Japheth means white. Right. You know, that, that's how they color code it. But that's illogical. Number one, because they all had the same parents, all three boys. You have Ham, who they color coded his name, meaning black, but the word ham actually means father of a multitude. The name Shem means famous or popular. The name Japheth means that his boundaries may expand. See, here's the problem. When we first meet Abram, his name is not Abraham, right. it's Abram, right. which means exalted father. When Abraham discovers that he's going to be the father of a multitude, the name Ham is added as a suffix. Now his name means the exalted father of a multitude. Mm -hmm. So the name Ham means father of a multitude. It doesn't mean black. And there are people who push back against that and, and insist that the name Ham means black. And I said, okay, if the name Ham means black, then Abraham's name means black father, black exalted father. They say, no, his name means the father of the exalted father of a multitude. I said, well, the name Ham doesn't mean black. Right. It means the father of a multitude. You can't have it both ways. Mm -hmm. You know, so 
And plus, Noah did not curse Ham. Noah cursed Canaan. Never said anything about a curse of Ham, but he cursed Canaan. Now, when you understand the Bible as literature, just reading it as literature, mm -hmm. you will find that the Genesis writer was setting Cain up to be dominated, to justify the Israelite domination of the land of Canaan. Mm -hmm. You know, um, because Ham, uh, 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 Ham has three, Ham has four sons. He, has, he had three sons, Canaan, he has Mizraim, he has Cush, and he has um, uh, the, the father of Libya. He has four sons. Canaan is not the only one, but Canaan is the only one that was cursed. Because later on, we're going to see the brutal slaughter of the Canaanites by the Israelites. Mm -hmm. So now when the reader is reading it, he is saying, okay, their domination is justified because of the curse of Canaan. It had nothing to do with white justification of dominating all black people. Right. That's understanding the Bible from a white evangelical hermeneutic, which is basically designed to justify white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what I challenge people on is change your biblical hermeneutic. Change how you understand the Bible and read the Bible for what it is and not with the lenses of white evangelical hermeneutics. Mm. So obviously one of the most contentious parts of discussions like this is the ethnicity of Jesus. And when you start that conversation, the question that you hear when you start to peel the layers back is what difference does it make what color his skin tone was? What difference does it make? Speak to that for a minute, because I saw on an interview you discussing that very point, and it, it's the go-to whenever you do start to have it, a, a learned discussion about what Jesus actually looked like. Well, first of all, truth should always matter. Is <laughs> this truth should always matter. Um, and the truth is, when you consider the the color of Christ, the earliest church, we, we don't know of any uh, depictions of Jesus before the third century BC, AD, before the third century AD. We don't have any known depictions. And when the early church started depicting Jesus, it was not to capture Jesus's historical likeness. But these images were designed to make theological statements. For example, one of the hot theological uh, debates back around the third century was docetism. And it challenged traditional Christian orthodoxy because docetism argued that Jesus was not really human, but Jesus was spirit and his body was only a projection of flesh but was not really flesh because the docetists said that God was too holy to come in contact with something that, has de that is as debased as human flesh. 
And so that was a, a doctrine that was circulating the early Christian community, and it challenged the orthodoxy of the church, which is Jesus was a human. So many of the early churches, when they invented depictions of Jesus, it was to debunk or to refute the notion of docetism because they argued that a ghost, a phantom, or a spirit cannot be captured in artistic renditions. And so on the catacombs of their, in their graves, on the surfaces of their worship space, they invented these images of Jesus, not to capture his historical likeness, but make, to make a theological statement to push back against the notion of docetism. Secondly, many of these early Christian community invented images of Jesus um, to, to reflect the worshiping, the ethnic makeup of the worshiping community. So many of the early depictions of Jesus were of him of dark skin. He was a black man in these early depictions. And that was not designed to capture his historical likeness, but it was designed to reflect the worshiping community, the ethnicity of the worshiping community. So embodied in these images of Jesus was the worshiping community. You look at this image of Jesus and you know that these, what the people of that worshiping community looked like. And so it was innocuous at the beginning when the images of Jesus began to surface. Now we move over into Europe, just like the earlier Christian uh, communities. The Europeans invented white images of Jesus mm -hmm. to reflect the European early Christian community, which is innocuous, which is innocent. For us, this is how Jesus looked. He is the embodiment of our European worshiping community. They initially were not trying to tell us that Jesus was a white man, but a mere reflection of the European worshiping community. Interesting. But what the European community had that the earlier Christian communities did not have, they had the, the Renaissance masters. They had Michelangelo. They had Leonardo da Vinci. And when those fellas started creating images of Jesus, it cemented in the minds of Europe what Jesus actually looked like. So it moved from a symbolic representation of Jesus to the actual historical depiction of Jesus because of the popularity of these Renaissance artists. When the slave trade began, white Christians armed with this image of white Jesus used it to legitimate their supremacy over people of color because they argued that this is what God in the flesh looked like, that God favored our race so much that when God decided to become flesh, he became white flesh because white flesh is the pure flesh. And it legitimized the reality that we are at the top of the social hierarchy because God decided to use us. And so they took this image of Jesus and used it to, to substantiate or to legitimize their domination of people of color. And so when they brought that white Jesus 
over to the Americas, that's what it was used for. Mm -hmm. And from that point forward, it has been the image of God. And it's an enduring image, and it's not going anywhere. And people around the world have come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ could not have looked like that historically, based upon where he was from, based upon where he was raised. But it continues to be the enduring image of our Lord. The Solomon head was invented in 1940. The Solomon head. And when you get a chance, look up S-A-L-L-M-A-N. A man named Solomon invented uh, this image of Jesus. We've all seen it. In the 20th century alone, that image has been replicated over a half a billion times. Wow. Half a billion. By far the most replicated image in world history. Even in 2022, if you walk in a grocery store and look on the magazine rack, you're going to see depictions of white Jesus, and we all know Jesus didn't look like that. So the question becomes, since we know he didn't look like that, why do we still perpetuate this lie? Why do we still perpetuate this image of white Jesus? You know, and it starts you to start thinking about this, raising this question. And then when you trace this thing back, you'll discover uh, back in, what year was that? Uh, what year was, uh, what is the name of the movie? Um, mm, oh my goodness. I can't think of the name of the movie. It was a huge movie that that depicted at the end of the Civil War Lord? when black men had the right to vote. What's the name of it? Was it Glory? Well, Glory was when they with Denzel Washington and they actually fought. No, 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 the 64th Regiment. No, it was an old movie. The movie came out back in the 1800s, and it was first viewed in the White House. Um, and it was, it was about the end of the Civil War right. when black men could now vote, and they were voting in um, a, a black lieutenant governor in South Carolina. They mm -hmm. had congressmen and all of that. And this movie came out. Oh my goodness, I can't think of it now. This movie came out, and the movie depicted black men in power as savages who had a thirst. Uh, for raping white women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the Ku Klux Klan came in and was Saved the, the savior of the Southern way of life. Right. What's the name of it? No, I, I was just saying they saved the day. The name of it is coming to me. Keep talking, it's coming. Yeah. They, Birth of a nation. Yeah, they saved the day. Birth of a nation. Birth, Birth, Birth of, of a, a nation. nation. They saved the day. That's right. And at the end of that movie, White Jesus, after, after the KKK saved the nation, at the end of that movie, white Jesus is standing there with his hands stretched out over the South as if he orchestrated the rebellion of the KKK and that he sanctions white domination of the South, that he reinstituted that. And from that point forward, white Jesus has become the image the 
the mascot for legitimacy of white supremacy. That's why the image of white Jesus is not going anywhere anytime, anytime soon. soon. Well, then because white supremacy is here and it's not going anywhere. So that begs the question on several... And so when you, Go ahead, doctor. And, and, and so when people ask the question, what color, what, what difference does his color make? That's the difference. And I asked one person who asked me that I was doing the lecture. I said, well, if his color doesn't matter, this is a white person who asked me, if his color doesn't matter, and you've been in church all of these years and you're a Christian, why don't you take a picture of black Jesus and hang it in your house? Let your white children see it. Let your white family see it. Point to that black Jesus and tell your white children, that's who God wants you to be like. That's who you should bow to. That's who you should worship. You know, that's who saved your soul from hell. That's who you're trying to be like. And when you die, that's who you're going to be with. If you can't do that, then his color matters. Excellent point. This all brings forth the question. On several occasions, you mentioned evangelicals. We had, um, we talked to the, the writer of the book. I want to make sure I have the title right. Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. It was a fascinating read, first of all, and it was a, and it was a great interview. You quoted, but not quoted, you referenced evangelicals on several occasions. The, predominant, the pastors of predominantly white churches that you have come across, what has been their reaction to your book? Um, they accuse me of being divisive, um, of race baiting, um, of using the Bible to advance my personal agenda. Mm -hmm. Uh, to inflame the passions of black people, um, all types of, of things, because it runs counter to their claim, to their narrative. That, you know, uh, my next book is coming out. In fact, it should be out within a couple of weeks, Black Church, White Theology, How White Evangelicalism Controls the Black Church. And one of the things that I argue in my book is that early white Christianity in America, you had a whitewashing of the Bible and much of the theology in white evangelical theology early on was shaped by white domination of black people to justify slavery. So you had white evangelicals, popular, well-educated pastors like Basil Manley, like John Albert Broadus. These men were in the South and they were slave-holding people and they owned 20, 30, 40 slaves. And so they use their white theology to justify their domination of black people. And so the 
if you've read Robert P. Jones's book, White Too Long, if you haven't read that, I suggest, man, you pick that up. Because once you pick it up and start reading it, you won't put it down until you're done. Robert P. Jones, who was a white guy who was raised in white evangelicalism, but then he could not justify how the racism and the white domination, and yet you're worshiping Jesus Christ on one hand, but justifying domination of black people and white supremacy on the other hand. He could not make these two agree. And so he went into research and started talking about the vestiges of white supremacy that's inherent in white evangelical theology. And that those same traces are influencing white evangelicalism today. Mm -hmm. One of the big evangelicals, probably one of the most consequential white evangelicals of our time, John MacArthur, who pastors out in, in California, he has written over 100 books. Many of the books we all preachers, we have in our library, John MacArthur. John MacArthur, in an interview in 2017, said slavery, this is in 2017, Doc. He said slavery, in some sense, has been instituted and ordained by God. He's still talking about slavery is justified. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons Basil Manley, back in the 19th century, he said one of the reasons the Civil War, that the South was defeated in the Civil War, was because it was divine punishment because white slave owners did not treat the slaves with decency and respect. Mm. That is, the judgment was not on the institution of slavery. In his mind, the judgment was on how white people treated slaves, mm -hmm. which suggests deductively, if we had treated them nicely, then God would have still had slavery you know, instituted even today. Interesting point. When the whole idea of slavery is abuse in and of itself. And Dr. so John MacArthur in 2017 justifies slavery, the king of white evangelical theology. So let me interject with this, with this point, uh, Dr. Williams. Thank you for that. We made reference to what's known as the slave Bible on the show before. And I've actually given a speech or two based on that as well. One of two or three copies that exists in the world is at the, the, the Bible Museum in DC, and it's on loan from Fisk University. And in that Bible, as you know, there's so much of it has been extracted from the Bible, New and Old Testament, in order for slave masters to justify the institution of slavery and to keep the members, or not the members, the, the slaves that they owned in an enslaved state mentally. And so the reaction to that slave Bible, they actually give people an opportunity to fill out little cards, put them on the wall at that museum in D.C., and you hear a lot of the commentary that you're making right now. And so where the white community is concerned, and, and we've got about 10 minutes left, but where the white community is concerned, are you finding a genuine ignorance and wanting to learn more once they get a hold of this information, to you, with, with your experience anyways? Or is there kind of a willful 
you know what? I like this thing the way it is. I like the narrative the way it is. The truth of the matter really is irrelevant to me at this point. What are you finding? Yeah, the, the latter. You know, um, it's a pushback against it. Um, I don't want to hear the truth. You know, because I don't want to risk my privileged position at the top of the social hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And my theology justifies my supremacy. Mm -hmm. So if I have to go back and rethink my theology and deconstruct my theology, that jeopardizes who I am at the top of the social hierarchy. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to let that go. Right. I'm in control. I've got power. I'm not letting it go. And I'm not going to let go of the structure that holds that notion in place. So before we before we adjourn, let's talk a little bit about the Bible is Black History Institute. This is tell us a little bit about that. And is there something offered that uh, pastors, church members, people in general can get involved with all over the world? Tell us a little bit about the Institute. OK, well, the Institute is a training arm. It's a teaching tool. Uh, to enlighten people about the history of the Bible uh, and to travel back to the theological roots of the Bible. I mean, when, when we begin to understand the Bible, a lot of times, particularly in the Gospels, when we understand Jesus, we rarely understand Jesus against the backdrop of his historical reality. The reality is, is that Jesus' ministry unfolded in Galilee of Palestine during the time Israel was under um, colonial oppression from the Roman Empire. The Roman government had colonized Israel. The Roman government had also co-opted the Jewish leadership, the Jewish ruling class, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the temple priesthood, and the Herodians. They had all been co-opted by the Roman Empire because Rome had the authority and the power to shut down the worship of Jehovah, to shut down the temple. And the Jewish ruling class understood, Rome, if you shut down the temple, you're going to justify our living. We won't be able to make a living. The scribes, the Pharisees, the priesthood, they all made their money off of the compensatory temple tax that was imposed on the residents of Galilee, Judea, the entire land of Israel. That's how they made their money. So under the threat of shutting down their religion, the Jewish ruling class was complicit and worked in conspiracy with the Roman political authorities to keep the Jews oppressed. And so when you look at what the Pharisees were teaching in those days, they were not teaching the revolutionary component of Judaism, which is very revolutionary. They weren't teaching about the prophets. And when the prophets came on the scene, they were prophesying against oppression, whether that oppression came from the Jewish ruling class or whether it came from foreigners that had cut a, a colonize Israel. When you look at Moses, Moses was a social justice leader. 
Moses saw the oppression and domination of his people stood up against a political power and said, here is what Yahweh said, let my people go. He was a social justice preacher. And we forget that. So there is a liberation theme throughout the Bible. And when we understand Jesus's ministry as it unfolded against the backdrop of oppression, marginalization, and Roman supremacy, then we get a better appreciation of what Jesus was talking about when he said, blessed are the poor. And when you look at that word poor in the Greek, it literally means blessed are those who were made poor. Mm-hmm. Made poor by political policies that disenfranchised those who were at the bottom of the social order. And so Jesus became the friend of those who were at the bottom. He was a friend and a savior of those who were at the bottom of the social order. So when we begin to understand Jesus's ministry against the backdrop of his historical reality, we get a different and a more biblical appreciation for what Jesus was dealing with. But as we have it now, we take Jesus out of his social context and put him in America in 2022, Mm -hmm. and we have made Jesus and his teaching as a white, evangelical, middle-class person who voted for Donald Trump, who's on the side of the rich and the powerful and the wealthy. How did Jesus of the Bible, who was on the side of the poor, all of a sudden, he's on the side of the rich and against the poor. Mm. And so we see how the religion of Jesus was prostituted in the interest of keeping the powerful in place. And so the Bible is black history. We want to understand the Bible from that perspective. And so we have coming online a nine-week course that people can enroll in and people can participate in to help us to understand. We're going to do it in nine-week segments. And there are a number of different pastors and teachers who are going to be joining me and sharing their thoughts and teaching these classes. That's coming up. We're going to try to roll it out in September of 2022. So I want to start this. I want to end this conversation. We've got about three minutes left. I want to end this conversation the way we began. And so often on this show and others, we we talk about millennials and this next generation behind us and their outlook on global warming, their outlook on the economy, their outlook on social justice, their outlook on the Bible. The same old narratives that that has caused division in all of these categories, the same narratives that has benefited a few and has hurt the masses are narratives that are no longer accepted by and large by this next generation. And so as we head to the finish line, talk to our listeners very quickly about regardless of how they feel personally, why we need to get serious about bringing truth to the biblical narrative in all of our churches if we expect to reach the next generation. Yeah. And, you know, man, my generation, you know, and you you have uh, millennial children, so we may be close in age. But when I was growing up, my brother, I mean, there were certain things, even if we had a question, we didn't articulate them. You know, we didn't question the Bible. We didn't question Jesus Christ. We didn't question the church. All of those were givens. You know, we didn't question that. Um, 
If you were a Democrat, you went Democrat. You didn't question uh, Democratic politics. You didn't question anything. If you were aligned with it, that's the way it was. But we have a generation now that's questioning everything. And it is so refreshing to see these young people, black and white, man, black and white, rising up and questioning the status quo, questioning the system, trying to make sense out of it. And if it doesn't make sense to them, they push back against it. Which in my estimation, and I might be out there, which in my estimation has a lot to do, resembles the kingdom of God. Because when we start talking about the kingdom of God, it is always antithetical to the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of God pushes back against the kingdoms of this world, even if we have to do it through young people. Because when, my, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he doesn't directly connect it with the church. So the kingdom movement may or may not include the church. Interesting. You know, so you have young people out there on the front line pushing it forward who have no connection with the church, but when they're pushing against oppressive forces, that reflects the kingdom mm, agenda. Interesting point. So we're going to get people more involved in the church than, you know, you know, we have to appreciate their resistance to the status quo and how these systems are working against them killing the environment, destroying the planet, and that type of thing. They and their children and grandchildren are going to inherit a planet that our generation and generations before have destroyed. We will be gone, moved off the scene, and this is what they have inherited. They're pushing it back against it, and rightly so. Dr. Theron D. Williams, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for an enlightening discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time to really put your thoughts on paper and to create this book, the dialogue that it spurs alone is worth the price of admission. Uh, we firmly believe here at the, the Public's Voice or the, at Next on WQLM that the dialogue is where change happens. And so even if you push back against the words of Dr. Williams in this book, it makes you think and it makes you challenge what you've learned. And if that's all it accomplishes, it still accomplishes a lot. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Marcus. I appreciate it. And God bless you and your ministry. Man. All right. Thank you so much. Well, this has been uh, Next on WQLN with Marcus Atkinson. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, once again, if you get an opportunity, go to our page on Facebook, like the page. Join us on Twitter, 814-NEXT. Lend your voice to the dialogue. Hope you enjoyed this. You could have did anything today. And you chose to spend 50 to, to 60 minutes with us. For Next on WQLN, I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. You can catch us every fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. on 91.3 FM. Uh, for next on Marcus Axon, we will see you next time.